Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. Zoom ties together communication tools into a single platform, including video conferencing, phone calls, and group chat. Zoom has more information online at zoom.com. Zoom. Meet happy. A few months ago, my mom started talking to me about jumping out of an airplane. My 74-year-old mom, who's not at all physically adventurous or any kind of adventurous. She doesn't ride bikes or go jogging. She doesn't even eat at new restaurants. Like, the most adventurous thing she did before this whole airplane thing was probably fall asleep one night without her heating pad. Makes sense to you? (laughs) Does it make sense to me? I mean, when you first told it to me, I just was shocked. Because you're not that kind of person. Like, what do you mean you want to go skydiving? Just seem crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, obviously, because, I mean, who at my age will do it and it will be considered sane? The whole thing started with a loss, the kind of loss that subtracts from your life something so central that you no longer really know who you are. About a year earlier, her husband, my father, who was a super vital guy, was diagnosed with a rare stomach cancer and died within a few weeks. Healthy, athletic, to death. It just did not compute in your head what went wrong here. They'd been married for 51 years, and they did everything together. Everything. Like, he drove her to the subway every morning, he picked her up in the evening, he made her tea every night, and it had been that way for over 50 years. Every inch of their lives, they had walked together, and my mother had no way of understanding her life story without him. Do you feel—what thoughts about Ellie's death were going through your head over and over? Uh, Could I do more? Did we miss anything? Why didn't I just take him and went to another hospital? All day long. All day long, it hit me. Could have saved him. Month after month, she went on like this, scratching circles into her brain, unable to make her way out. Don't want to eat. I don't want to cook. I don't want to... Completely stuck. But then, as the first anniversary of his death approached, I got a text which suggested a very different kind of thought had bloomed in her head. It was a link to a place called Skydive Philadelphia. A photo of a guy doing two thumbs up and a really happy-looking woman. And the word, interested? Honestly, no. I was not interested. I mean, I am really terrified of heights. Like, I can barely look out a third-floor window. I knew my brother had gone skydiving in college, so I called him up, thinking maybe he would go with her instead. No, I'm not doing it. I did it already. And? And it's psychotic. So. But what do you mean it's psychotic? Like, why? Okay, go go, go to something that says, Granny, skydive, fail. <laughs> That's what you're sending me? Yeah, no, no, go, go to YouTube. All right. I'm no, fine. no, watch it, watch it. No, seriously, just watch it while you're on the phone with me and see All what right. the hell happens here. Okay. Granny really does not want to get out of the plane. She's gripping the sides of the door. So the skydiving dude, he has to pry her hands off the side of the plane and then shove her out. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Keep looking. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. As they free fall, her butt starts to slip out of the harness that's attaching her to the parachute. And then she keeps slipping until she's practically hanging from her ankles by this little strap in the sky. Ah! <laughs> Granny makes it to the ground, alive, but barely. Why did you show me this? 
Because your mom's about to embark about something as stupid as that. Wow, this was like really not helpful. This was really not helpful. No, I wasn't trying to help you. All right. If I was going to be a good daughter, I needed a reason to jump. So I texted her, why do you want to do this? All right, can you just read what you texted to me? Oh, this one? Yeah. Okay. Up there, we'll say hello, and we'll meet someday. That was her idea. Up there, she would catch a glimpse of her husband, deliver a message. Yeah, that's exactly the thought, you know? We'll say hello to him, and we'll tell him we're going to meet someday again. And this is to give you some really comfort, you know? That you, you know, you're hoping that you will, you will really see him one day, you know, no matter where, no matter what. But that's exactly what I want. Yeah, you will be great. It was a little death wishy, but you'd have to have a heart of coal not to be moved by this. This ballet in the air. My dad leaps from above, my mom from below. They meet for a second and then separate, but vow to meet again soon. The end. Load one. I'm so excited. Welcome to the fourth season of Invisibilia. I'm Hannah Rosen. And I'm Elise Spiegel. Invisibilia is a show about all of the invisible forces that shape human behavior, our beliefs, concepts, emotions. This season, we have tales of bank robbers, publicly shaming harassers, and spies who are coming for your mom. Lulu Miller, our other host, is moving into a contributing editor role with the show, so you'll hear from her later this season. But today, we're asking, what's the best way to lose? We look for clues in grammar, in my mom's desire to jump out of an airplane, and by talking to a beekeeper who thinks he's been swindled by Russian mobsters. Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. Whether you're new to Pocket Casts or have been a fan for years, as an NPR listener, they're offering you a free three-month trial of Pocket Casts Plus, giving you all of the great features of their free mobile app, plus more. Listen to the podcasts you love and discover even more when you redeem your trial at pocketcasts.com slash NPR. It's Guy Raz here, and if you're enjoying the new season of Invisibilia, you should also take a listen to the latest episode of the TED Radio Hour. It's called Decoding Our Emotions, and it's all about how language, culture, and context can shape our emotional lives. You can find it at NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. After my father died, I found myself constantly drawn to stories about loss— People losing their job or their house or their dog or their democracy. It felt like what was inside my head was happening outside, everywhere. When my son lost his tooth, I drew the line. No more losing. I refused to give it to the tooth fairy. Instead, I woke up at 3 a.m. to steal it from under his pillow and then started obsessively fantasizing about how I could put it back in its rightful place. His mouth. When my husband accidentally donated a bag filled with our most beloved baby books to the local library sale, I started to panic. So at dawn on the day of the sale, I woke up, I biked to the library in my pajamas, and accosted the ladies running the sale to let me find my bag among the hundreds of bags. And I found myself standing in the middle of the street in my pajamas, holding our old Richard Scary book. Why? Why did I care so much? 
about some old Richard Scarry book. Why couldn't I get on with it? So while I was in this funk, I came across a story in a California newspaper about this guy who seemed just as lost as I was. I had to start over from scratch, is what he'd said. I couldn't get that line out of my head. In the middle of his loss, this man was reaching for something. He was trying to get on with it, too. And that's how I ended up in Shoto, Montana, a beautiful small town at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, at the farm of Lloyd Cuniff, who's a beekeeper. Hi. Hi. I just can't believe this is what you get to look at every day. Lloyd is a compact guy with glasses. He isn't easily riled up or impressed. Yeah, it looks so beautiful. Oh, yeah. I know. It's nice and quiet. Lloyd and his wife, Brenda, moved here to Lloyd's grandfather's farm about 25 years ago to build their small family bee business, Beeline Honey Company. Since then, beekeeping has gotten automated and commercialized, but not on their farm. As global forces were completely reshaping beekeeping, Lloyd and Brenda were somehow finding ways to hold on to the past. We sort the darker combs from the lighter combs so that you get nicer honey, and, and we do it the old-fashioned ways. Every morning, they woke up and checked on their colonies one by one, just like you check on children in their rooms. We'll have to go see what the girls are doing. <laughs> That's awesome. And for years, it was fine. It was hard work, but satisfying. And then in 2016, the first big blow. Their bees had been hit hard by something called colony collapse disorder. You've probably heard about it. It's this kind of mass exodus of worker bees that destroys the hives and has decimated lots of beekeepers. We lost half of our bees. They were down to their last 500, 488 hives to be exact. And then came the second blow. It was dry that year, and their honey crop from the remaining hives was meager. Honey was their sole source of income. And so they were teetering, about to lose everything unless they got some fast money. And for a beekeeper, the only place in America to get fast money is California, because that's where you'll find almonds. The almond rush started about 15 years ago, after the nut broke out from the rest of the nut pack and became an international health food superstar. Suddenly, everybody wanted almonds. Coastal elites, the aspiring middle class in the U.S., in China, in India, the Obamas. You know, almond, almonds are a good snack. Almonds are now a $5 billion business. It is huge money. To satisfy this global appetite, it seems like much of California was made over into one giant almond orchard. 80% of the world's almonds are grown there. And what do California's almonds need? Bees. Lots and lots of bees are trucked into California every year from all over the country to produce lots and lots of almonds. Now, from Shota to California is a long way. And Lloyd and Brenda both know that they're bee babies. They're not designed to be to be moved around. They move themselves around, you know, three miles at a time. You know, they're not they're not designed to be loaded up and trucked thousands of miles and it, on a rattling truck for days. You know, that's not what bees are supposed to be doing. But Lloyd and Brenda were desperate. They needed to make as much money as they could from the 488 hives they had left. And going to California would get them a quick hundred grand for those hives. Take one little bite of the California poison apple. Just one little bite. And then they could retreat home. So on a freezing cold day in January of 2017, Lloyd set out in his truck to California. The last shipment of hives strapped tight in the back, listening to the music he found most soothing. Metallica. 
The volume cranked up, his worries running in the background. I just knew when we got down there, there was, they weren't going to make it. Couldn't do it. It was too cold. It freeze to death. One little virus. Apocalyptic one little, cold. One little thing. White one little virus. Face of the earth. One I little, one this little thing. I want to stay the hell out of there. I want to stay the hell out of there. A couple days later, Lloyd pulled onto a gravel road in Yuba City, just outside of Sacramento, along a field of sunflowers. He climbed onto the truck bed and found himself pleasantly surprised. Yeah, we took the lids off of them. They were just just snug as a bug in there. Lloyd laid the boxes out on the dry grass one by one, exactly two and a half feet apart in neat rows, ten in each row. His plan was to come back early the next morning and feed them. And we quit at 4.30 in the afternoon when it was starting to get dark and foggy. And we went, went home, and I called her on the phone, told her how good the bees were. And, and He was all excited. The bees have never looked this healthy in years. They're wonderful. That we only had one dead one and, and three of them that were kind of dinky. In heaven. Heaven. It was wonderful. <laughs> they were healthy, vital, just like my dad had been. Lloyd left that evening, secure in the knowledge that he had saved his beautiful life with the bees. Early the next morning, Lloyd got back in his truck to go feed the bees. So I'm going down the road where I thought I was supposed to be going, and I was on the right road, and I p- pulled off, and I pulled in on this, on this levee. I said, well, I must be on the wrong road, because the bees aren't there. So we drove to the next place, and they were gone. We drove to the next place, and all the way down, there was four places, and they were all gone. That was it. We didn't have anything. We had one hive of bees left. It wasn't like a cancer, a known villain. Lloyd lost the core of his identity in the most absurd and improbable way. It took a couple of hours at most. It turns out... Lloyd wasn't the only person hungry for fast almond money. Thieves wanted in on it, too. They came in the middle of the night. They drove to the remote field where Lloyd had carefully placed his bee children. Like a foggy, foggy night. That's Alex Storyenko. He's a beekeeper in the area and also used to track escaped convicts for the Russian army. He didn't see the crime, but he's figured out how it would have gone down, based on tire tracks and just knowing a lot about bees. The other voice is Ryan Cousins, also a beekeeper, who was asked by the local sheriff to help investigate the crime. According to Alex and Ryan, the thieves probably used a big truck to pull off the heist. Perhaps a semi-truck with a 48-foot trailer. Some men would get out of the truck. Four guys. In vinyl white coveralls, white hats, veils, beekeepers. They immediately set to work, go row by row, and start stacking, loading Lloyd's bee boxes onto the truck stack them in stacks of three to four pallets. All the way to 488. Then tie the hives in so they don't fall off the truck. Four-inch ratchet straps that you throw over the top of the the hives and you ratchet them tight. And then head to the highway with the contents of someone's whole world in their truck bed. Pretty gutsy of those folks, what they pulled off. Yeah. It was the largest beehive heist in a single night anyone out there can remember. Lloyd's hives plus 200 others. For Lloyd and Brenda, it felt like an alien force had snuck in and hijacked their story. I was pissed. You know, I can't believe that somebody would steal somebody's livelihood right out from underneath their nose. 
What do you do when someone takes your livelihood, your identity, and leaves an empty space where your whole life used to be? We'll find out after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. From Hidden Brain to How I Built This, from Planet Money to Code Switch, enjoy all your favorite NPR podcasts on Pocket Casts, a free and feature-filled podcasting app. And now they're offering NPR listeners even more. Try Pocket Casts Plus for three months free and take your podcast listening experience to the next level. Visit pocketcast.com slash NPR to redeem your trial. Ever get to Friday, look back on the week, and say to yourself... What just happened? I'm Sam Sanders. Check out my podcast, It's Been a Minute, where every Friday we catch up on the news and the culture of the week and try to make sense of it all. Listen on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. This is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. When we left off, Lloyd and Brenda had lost not just their livelihood, but also the thing at the center of their identity. So they were reeling, looking for someone to blame. Here's Hannah. Who was the enemy? Who was responsible for their suffering? And what had shifted in America to put a small-time family business like Lloyd's in such danger? Lloyd started to suspect that someone high up in the country was not doing their job. They brought in, brought in a load of criminals out of the, uh, from the Eastern Bloc and brought them in here and dumped them right in the middle of us so they could steal us blind. Lloyd got this idea in his head a few months after the hive heist when a couple of guys named Vitaly Yuroshenko and Pavel Tvertinov were arrested for the possession of stolen property. They both pled not guilty, and the case is still making its way through the courts in Fresno. The prosecution contends that the men ran a kind of beehive chop shop, rent out the bees, dismantle the hives, and then resell the parts. That's how they supposedly made their money. Yuroshenko and Tvertinov, the suspects, they're part of this huge influx of Slavic refugees who settled in Sacramento over the last couple of decades. And some of them have gotten into the bee business. From Lloyd and Brenda's perspective, these newcomers, the Slavic beekeepers, they were turning the world of beekeeping into a lawless and reckless place, displacing and terrorizing small-time beekeepers like Lloyd and Brenda. That was part of what they wanted to talk to me about. So what do you think about all this stuff that goes on about the immigrants, the illegal immigrants and the dreamers? They seem to be grabbing at bits and pieces of ideas that are out there right now, like immigration policy, as the cause of their pain. Because their pain was so big and overwhelming, it demanded an explanation. Why can't they make it right? Because they were getting a free pass. Okay, okay. So what I don't understand is why they aren't uh-huh. Trying to be legal. Uh-huh. Sitting in the kitchen over slices of pizza, listening to them talk immigration, I realize this must be something we're all susceptible to when we lose big, creating a grand narrative of good and evil with ourselves at the center of it. They just needed some way to deal with all this hurt they were feeling. For me, it's like, I just spent 25 years paying the bills and doing it, and I have my house paid for I'm not going to mortgage it again. I have to sit here and go, you know, I have to start all over. Do I want to at 58 years old? You know, when we started in this bee business, my daughter had to eat Roman noodles and, and for years, you know, and we built this. You take that all away from me in one night. We talked for a long time, 
open the windows, and then close them again. I noticed their whole house was a kind of shrine to bees. There were bee pillows, a bee thermometer, a bee fly swatter, a collection of these hive-shaped wicker baskets called skeps. And it was clear as the evening passed that Brenda's mind could not come to rest. When she wasn't following the immigration thread, her mind would circle around her pain in other ways, searching for other possible answers. Did I deserve this? Did I do something to cause this? That seemed so obviously wrong. But when I questioned her, she didn't even hear me. She was so lost in this internal logic. I mean, who could judge you for that? It's like somebody came and took, you know, everything you had. Have I not been a good enough person? Do I deserve that's I that's me. Did I deserve this? Did I do something wrong? Could I have fixed this? I, 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 me. The way she was talking, it sounded very familiar. Brenda was doing exactly what my mother had done all year since my father died, scratching circles into her brain, not really able to take in the loss and what it meant, not really able to think about who they could be now, just getting stuck. It seemed like an impossible problem. When the thing that holds your world together disappears, how do you find your way out of your old story and into a new one? I called around, and there was this one guy whose answer made some sense to me. His name is James Pennebaker. He goes by Jamie, and he's a professor of psychology at UT Austin. He studies words and language. And how we can use words to influence our ability to cope with upsetting experiences. Jamie is married to a novelist, and the way he thinks about life is, we all walk around with a story about ourselves, and we're always shifting and editing that story. But then sometimes something huge and terrible happens, something that knocks out such a big chunk of the story that it just doesn't hold together anymore. Let's say that someone very close to you dies suddenly. That touches every part of your life, your daily routine, how you connect with other people, it's your health, all of these different parts of yourself. And it's hard to put those all together. So you'll walk down the street and you'll think about one aspect and you'll get upset and then you'll switch to another thing, you'll get upset. But the ability to get on with it is the ability to put this experience into a simpler, perhaps more coherent story. Now, some people can do that with relative ease. They can tell themselves, loss is a natural part of life, or I'll find someone new to share my life with. Or, instead of bees, I'll try llamas. Or whatever. But then there are the harder cases. People like Brenda and Lloyd or my mom, they reach this cliff where they have to face this critical question. Do I change my story about my life? Or do I continue persevering with the old story, even though the, the facts don't fit very well. Jamie wanted to know if he could find clues to the differences between the two groups, the ones who shifted and the ones who circled in place. So several years ago, he came up with a computer program that could measure, mathematically measure, the differences. When people are doing a good job coping with loss, exactly what words are they using and how many times are they using them? L-I-W-C. Linguistic Inquiry and word count. Which I pronounce Luke. In a few different studies, Jamie had people come in and write about what they'd been through, usually for 15 minutes a day for three or four consecutive days. And then Luke, the mechanical grammarian, divided up the words into different categories and cataloged them. In some studies, Jamie followed up with the essay writer several months later to see which ones felt better. 
physically and emotionally. What really jumped out were there were huge differences in pronouns. 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 You know. He, she, they, we. Actually, he found the most important pronouns to track were I-words. I, me, my. A person who uses I-words at a higher-than-average rate tends to be more personal, more honest, more self-aware. In my book, a good person to hang out with. But according to Jamie, a person who stays in I-mode all the time and never shifts, you need to worry about. Depressed or depression-prone. I, that single-letter word, is a cunning little beast. Why didn't I, why didn't I just... Have I not been a good enough person? I don't want to eat. I don't want to cook. I don't want to... Did I deserve Why it? didn't I pay attention? Did I do something to cause this? I don't know. Jamie has also sicked Luke the grammarian on poets to count their pronouns. I am nobody. I have nothing to do with explosions. I have given my name and my day clothes up to the nurses. That's Sylvia Plath. The poets who use more I-words are much more likely to have taken their own lives. Almost as though she keeps digging and digging into her misery, as opposed to trying to stand back and get a broader perspective on it. The pattern the computer program picked up was the people who benefited the most were the ones who switched from I to he, she, we, and then back to I again. Not because this meant they were selfless or deeply invested in others, but because perspective switching... Implies... Detachment. You looking at yourself from a little distance, writing your story as if it were someone else's. If they were able to do that... They started to develop a more coherent, structured story. Different than the one that had been circling and circling around in their brains. There was another category of words that turned out to be critical to coping. Think, understand, realize. These were words that showed evidence of working through something, which led to Jamie's ultimate conclusion and the reason that his research hit home with me. Brenda had a story she kept repeating. My mom had a story she kept repeating. But if you're having trouble coping, it's no good to just have a story. A ready-made one about what had happened to you that you kept repeating over and over again to yourself and everyone else. You have to step outside at some point and actively construct a new story. There had to be some moment, somehow, where you saw what happened to you as if you were the author writing about it, not the character living it. Does constructed, does that mean made up? No. A, a constructed story is putting things together. Taking the pieces that exist and rearranging them in some new way that puts the ghosts in the background that matches the facts and lets you find a new place to stand in the world that you are actually living in. Pollinating's not for us because we don't want the go, go, go. We don't want that fast pace. We're these little farmers from Montana that, you know, like, you know, the slower pace. Just tweak your story. It sounds simple, but it is so hard. When I was with Brenda and Lloyd, I could feel the ghosts of their old story still stubbornly hanging around. We walked through the old wooden barn that Lloyd's grandpa had built, a cold, dark space that was very neatly arranged. Along one wall stood a big stack of bee boxes. 
So these are the boxes that were stolen. Some of them, yes. And where were the bees that were? The bees are, I chased the bees out. The boxes were stamped with the name of the company that the thieves had set up and the phone number. Lloyd hadn't gotten around to painting the boxes over or throwing them out, so the pile had just been there for months. I could feel Brenda start to circle again. I grew up agriculture. I'm used to the not making any money and going for next year. But when peop- when a person does it to you, it's, it's more like a rape. You mean you just, in the sense it, you feel, vi- like you feel... Yes, it's violation. It's, it's not just Mother Nature or, you know, it's... Person. Yeah, it, it's an attack. Lloyd cracked one of the boxes open. There's a few crawling around in there, so... Apparently, he hadn't chased all of them out. For the first time all day, Lloyd seemed totally relaxed in his element. It's a beautiful white honey. Just run it. You can't even tell us what's liquid there. Lloyd dipped a stick into the honey. Taste it. Oh, that's delicious. The circling and circling that Lloyd and Brenda had been doing back to the moment of pain and loss, the experts might not recommend it, but sometimes it gives rise to something raw and beautiful like honey or poetry. I only wanted to lie with my hands turned up and be utterly empty. How free it is. You've no idea how free. I find myself going to places like we used to eat together, even breakfast, and all of a sudden things that we really love to eat had no taste. I can't even swallow them. One of the main things keeping my mom stuck was she couldn't bring herself to do any of the things that she liked to do when my dad was alive. Eating a toasted sesame bagel at the bagel place, walking down Queens Boulevard, shopping. Because I feel guilty everything that I do, because it's almost like betraying him. Uh, Why am I here enjoying life and he's not there with me? Do you understand? He's buried. And then one day, my mom was just ready. I honestly did not expect it. I can say from a fair amount of experience that she has not historically been a pivoter. It happened the way Jamie Pennebaker said it would, but completely independently. Like, my mom didn't know I just talked to him a few days before. A thought just popped into her head while she was home alone during the holidays. I reversed the feeling. Meaning she switched places with my dad. Switched from I to he and him. That I said, if I will be the one who died, what I would like him to be, in what position? Would I like him to enjoy life, to continue doing whatever he continued to do with the grandkid, to go continue with the friendship, to continue normal? And the answer was immediate, on the spot, 100% yes. And that opened my eyes all of a sudden. The, now I'm convinced that he would do, he would like me to do the same thing. People had said that to her before. He would like you to enjoy life. But for whatever reason, this time, it stuck. She was fully able to step outside herself and see the same story from another perspective, my dad's. And that little thing changed everything. When I reversed the whole thing, and I said what I would like him to do, if it will be reversed, and the answer was 100% yes, I don't want him to suffer, that make my life much easier and accepting. And, and, I, and the jump will be conclu- a conclusion of the whole thing. 
And hopefully that will enable me, you know, to continue life and just, just keep going. Here specifically is how the jump fits into it. How my mother took bits and pieces of her life and rearranged them. Where the jump closes one chapter on her story and lets the next chapter begin. Her new story begins in 1967 with a knock. Knock on the door. And we were all shaken. At the time, my mom was in a bomb shelter at her aunt's house. This was in Tel Aviv during a war. And the entire country was in complete blackout. I mean, you can't see even one inch in front of you. My dad had already been gone for 60 days. You see, he was a paratrooper. And I was a young bride with a six-month-old baby. That was my brother. And when the knock came, my mom did not get up. She didn't move. We didn't want to open the door. That means that they're coming to give us bad news, that, you know, your spouse or whatever is dead. That's what a knock meant at the time. And finally, when we opened the door, it was my dad. The truck that was transporting his unit had broken down and wouldn't be ready for 24 hours. He had hitchhiked to Tel Aviv just to sneak in a kiss. Just said, I'm here, I'm alive, I'm fine, give us a kiss, and he left. I've heard this story over the years, but this time, she took it in a whole other direction. And that's the only thing that was his that I never shared, because I never went to the army. I just had ideas and stuff like that. But I said, here I have an opportunity to do something that he had done that we never shared. And it's like felt complete that I'm, I'm risking it and I want to do exactly what he did at that time. And it, it made me feel, you know, feel good. I just wanted to do it. So it's like completing a story. Completing a story, yes. So here it is. I'm doing it for your sake. I'm not even thinking about the danger. I'm just doing it because I want to share everything that you did that I miss. What do you think it's going to be like out there? Cold. Windy. <laughs> Cold, windy, and wonderful, and free. It's a free, free feeling, absolutely. Yes, it's going to be awesome. On the day of the jump, my mom took two old sweatshirts and sewed the letters E-L-I onto them. That was his name, Eli. In Hebrew, it suggests ascending to God, something up high. I sat in the back of the tiny plane as we climbed on high, trying not to look out the window, not to track how very far up we were going. In order to resist my strong urge to totally disassociate, I stared at my mom, who was just in front of me. She looked so happy. The skydiving guys took it to be a two-thumbs-up kind of happy. But to me, it looked religious. Her lips were moving. I love you, Ellie. I love you, Ellie. I love you, Ellie. And I'm doing it for you. I love you, Ellie. Yes, I love you, Ellie. I love you, Ellie. I love you, Ellie. I'm doing it for you. I love you, Ellie. I love you, Ellie. I miss you, and I'll be doing it for you. The young guy in front of us tumbled out the door, just fell away. My mom was next. She took her position at the edge of the open door. I love you, Ellie. I love you, Ellie. And we do it for you. The wind was freezing and brutal, and I desperately wanted to pull her back in. She raised her chin, arranged her arms like wings. I feel you. I really do. She didn't look back.
That's Hannah Rosen. After a quick break, a sneak peek of next week's episode. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. From Hidden Brain to How I Built This, from Planet Money to Code Switch, enjoy all your favorite NPR podcasts on Pocket Casts, a free and feature-filled podcasting app. And now they're offering NPR listeners even more. Try Pocket Casts Plus for three months free and take your podcast listening experience to the next level. Visit pocketcast.com NPR to redeem your trial. Invisibilia is hosted by me, Elise Spiegel. And me, Hannah Rosen. Our show is edited by Ann Goodenkoff. Our executive producer is Kara Tallow. Invisibilia is produced by Megan Kane, Yoe Shaw, and Abby Wendell. Our project manager is Liana Simstrom. Lulu Miller is a contributing editor. We had help from Alex Cheng, Rebecca Ramirez, Mark Mehmet, Micah Ratner, Stephanie Hayes, Bryn Winterbottom, Nancy Shute, Meredith Rizzo, Nareet Eisenman, John Hamilton, Chris Bendereff, and Maggie Penman. Our technical director is Andy Huther. Our vice president of programming is Anya Gronman. Special thanks to the Storyenko family and Ryan Cousins for providing background details about the case of the great beehive heist. To my mom for talking so openly with me. To my brother for being my brother. And to my dad, way up in the sky, I love you. Thanks to the band Peels for letting us use their song Grapefruit from their album Honey from Rough Trade Publishing and music by Kai Angle and Lee Rosevere used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music for this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information about this music and to see original artwork by Sarah Wong for this episode, visit www.npr.org slash invisibilia. Tune in next week for a brand new episode, The Tale of a Singer and a journalist who take on terrorism with reality TV. He was like, we're making a TV series in Somalia a la American Idol. Are you interested? And now, for our moment of non-zen. I mean, honestly, I just think it's like demented activity. Of course it is. I told you. Was I right? It's like it has a nice name, but then it's like what it is is that you go up in in an airplane. That's all rickety and stuff. And then you walk out of it. Okay, Mommy, can you, wait, can you say the phrase, join us next, <laughs> stop laughing. Can you say the phrase, join us next week for more Invisibilia? Join us next week for more Invisibilia. Hey, so in addition to our stories, Invisibilia creates all sorts of cool, original digital content around each episode on NPR.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter to see photo essays, read Q&As with our experts, and learn more about the topics we discuss every week. You can also sign up for our newsletter at NPR.org slash newsletter slash Invisibilia.